What's up, everybody? Welcome to this Madre podcast number six. We've got a really amazing pair of guests today. Lisbeth Mateo and Luis Angel are both uh, immigrants from Mexico. They were brought over here when they were kids. They busted their ass through school, put themselves through college, and actually put themselves through law school. They're both on the leading edge of activism with regards to the U.S. immigration uh, undocumented population. Many of the laws that we have over the last few years, the actions that have been taken by the government, have been because of their strong work, efforts, and sacrifice. And I'm not joking when I say sacrifice because some of the shit they've done to move this stuff forward is fucking crazy and it's extremely courageous. So we're now in the era of Trump. This episode I think is really important. You should share it with your friends and family because a lot of this information is very useful, practical information for our community. And it's also just extremely cool to hear their stories. So please share this with your friends and family. If you like what we're doing here with this podcast, with our other programs on This Madre, please support us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash This Madre. And please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Thank you very much. Remember to share this with your friends and family. All right, all right. Welcome to this week's podcast number six. Six? Six? Yes. <laughs> the first podcast in our new Trump era. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, we are doing this one. We have a couple of last-minute guests that I think uh, are, are really awesome, amazing people who are doing great work in the community and who I think you need to hear from, uh, especially given this week's um, events. Um, first, we have Luis Angel, who um, is a attorney. You are originally from where in Mexico? Uh, Culiacán. Okay, from Culiacán. You came when you were eight, right? Or, yeah. Yep. Okay, so Luis Angel came over here from Culiacán when he was eight. Um, grew up in East Side San Jose? Or San Jose? West Side. West Side. Grew up in San Jose. Um, I'm going to cut the intro off. And now he's an attorney who has DACA and is representing other people with DACA and going through uh, immigration proceedings and removals and all that pretty shitty stuff. Um, and our second guest is Lisbeth Mateo, who is a recent graduate of law school and is also um, an immigrant from Oaxaca. You're from Oaxaca? Yes. Okay. And you also grew up in San Jose. No, I actually grew up in L.A. Oh, you grew up in L.A.? Where in L.A.? Uh, Clover City, then Inglewood. Okay. I thought you were from here. I came to law school. Yeah. You came to law school here? Okay. So, um, and you are currently trying to get DACA? Is that what's going on, or...? Yeah, I applied for DACA in 2015, and actually, Luis is representing me in my case because uh, yeah. the government is trying to deny me DACA. So we're fighting that, trying to work um, to make sure that I get DACA like everyone else because I do qualify. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's take a step back. I, would, I want people to learn a little bit about you. So, um, Lisbeth, maybe tell us a little bit about, like, your story, where you're from, when your parents came, and kind of your story of, like, where you went to high school and you know, how you eventually got to Santa Clara, where'd you go to undergrad and that sort of stuff. Sure. Um, so I was born in Mexico, in Oaxaca, um, in a little town, well, not so little anymore, um, called Santiago Matatlan, which is close to uh, the capital of the state of Oaxaca. <clears throat> uh, when I was uh, 14, my parents decided that they were going to move to California, they were going to move the whole family to California in order to give us a better chance of um, going to college and just having a better life. Um, My parents were uh, very hard workers in Mexico, but they couldn't make ends meet. It was just very tough. And it wasn't a safe either, so we all moved to 
um, LA with uh, a lot of uncles and cousins that I had um, living in the area. I went to high school in Venice. Um, so I graduated from high school in Venice, um, California. That's where I learned English because I didn't speak in English when I came. Uh, then I went to Santa Monica College, a two-year uh, community college, then transferred to Cal State Northridge and then San Fernando Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, and graduated the same year that Obama was elected president. Wow. And um, I was undocumented, didn't have any work permit, couldn't really have a, a job. And so I worked in a deli for many years until I was able to start organizing and really, um, you know, do things that I wanted to, to do with my life. Um, and at some point I decided that I wanted to go to law school. I mean, I've always wanted to go to law school since I was a little girl, but I decided it was time to apply to law school. And What did you, you do for your undergrad? Um, I did Chicano studies. So okay. I, I have yeah. a degree in Chicano studies um, with emphasis in social science because I was thinking about being a teacher. Okay. But um, that didn't work out, so I ended up um, applying to law school, and I came to Santa Clara for, for law school yeah. and just graduated, like, in May. Wow. Uh, Lisbeth is very modest. She, like, <laughs> glossed, glossed over her activism in the, in the undocumented movement. Lisbeth is actually one of the key leaders behind the DREAM Act. Uh, she was going back and forth between L.A. and D.C., working with tons of community groups to push for the DREAM Act, um, both in the, in the various versions, including the one in 2010 that came the closest. Um, so sh- she'll do that, so just <laughs> during the interview. <laughs> That's why I think it's yeah. important for both of you to be here, because <laughs> yeah, exactly. you'll probably be modest about all the shit you're working on. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. This is the one right here. She's, she's the real deal. Awesome. So you were doing that as a, when did that work start? When did the activism start? Um, around 2003. Uh, so my first year in college, I met other undocumented students. At first, I thought I was the only one because uh, I didn't really know anybody else who was undocumented, who was in college. But um, one of my classmates um, gave me a petition uh, for the DREAM Act. And that was the first time that I learned about the DREAM Act. And I thought, okay, well, this is something that's going to benefit me. So, For people who don't know, what is the DREAM Act? What was it back then in its initial incarnation, if you will? Yeah. Yeah, so the DREAM Act is a proposal that will essentially legalize um, the status of undocumented young people who came here before the age of 16, who want to go to college or want to join the military. At least that was the sort of like the last version of it um, yeah. in 2010. Um, and at that point, I mean, I, I, I thought this is just amazing. Like, this is what I... This is what I've been waiting for. Yeah. Um, so I started organizing around that. Uh, not as open about my status back then, but I did um, gather hundreds of petitions from people that I knew and people that I didn't even know. Um, and I think I was a little naive to think that there was just no way that the government was going to say no to this, right? And so I, that's how I started organizing. Yeah. Um, and eventually became more open about my status, um, met more undocumented students, transferred to CSUN. We started a... Um, student group at CSUN, the first one, and became more active with other other groups on campus, with the student government, with the community, um, and just didn't stop. Yeah. So 2003, you said, is when you started. And then it wasn't Obama. Man. It was Bush. Yeah, I know. I was just, I was just about to say, man, like to do that in that environment is just like, uh, it, 
Yeah, you were you were naive, I think. <laughs> In a good way. <laughs> Thank God for naive people. Otherwise, shit would never get done. <laughs> I think I, I think it helped that I had a lot of faith in yeah. just how good this idea was, right? Yeah. Or, or at least I thought it was good. Yeah. And a lot of my teachers in high school kept telling me, you know, if you just work hard, you're going to get where you want to go. You yeah. just have to demonstrate that you're hard worker that you're willing to you know keep working keep moving forward yeah and i said well i'm willing to do that of course and i, I think it was definitely too naive mm-hmm. but, yeah what were you doing in 2003 2003 man i was up to no good man uh, <laughs> uh, i was roaming the streets of san jose uh i was in i think had just started high school oh i was i was in the streets of san jose roaming the streets probably with uh friends i think i was like playing soccer Going to high school, I think freshman year of high school, you know, um, not political at all, not open about my status. Um, I had been brought up by my family since I was eight when I when I first came to the U.S. to to learn all these like crazy details about to try to prove that I was born in the United States. So, you know, all of my friends thought I was born here. You know, I would tell people like the hospital I was born in, like O'Connor Hospital. You know, and people were like, "That's just too much information. Like, there's something fishy <laughs> about that story." So. Not political, not doing any of the work uh, that Lisbeth had already started. Um, just naive in a different way. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how did you, um, it's, it you know, from what I know, like your, you know, your parents came over for similar reasons, financial reasons, and just a little more opportunity for you guys. Um, what was your path from high school to your undergraduate experience? And I'm, I'm always, always curious, like literally, how did you pay for school? not being like where were you working this job and like you know were your parents like helping pull things together like talk about that some because that practical shit is really what matters at the end of the day which is a political consequence right what yeah so you know in 2006 uh you know may 1st happens um which was like the big awakening i think of like the sleeping giant millions of people hit the streets to protest hr 4437 which was going to criminalize unlawful presence in the united states and, and that was a, a federal? It's a federal bill yeah. Uh, by, yes, Senator yeah, Sansenbrenner. Out of which state? What state was he? Oh, I forget. That was a long time ago. I can't Fucking remember. Alabama or something. <clears throat> it was somewhere in, um, in the Midwest, I think. Oh, okay. um, I want to say Illinois. I huh. may be wrong. Um, I don't remember. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Sorry, Illinois. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I well. shat on Alabama, and I'm not sorry. I just want to put that on the I'm not sorry for shitting on you. Yeah, so, so that happened, and... So um, wait, so that, that bill was proposed, and then there was a big kind of movement against it? Okay. Yeah, um, a lot of high school walkouts, some um, kids from community college came to my high school and were like, we're going we're gonna to organize these walkouts, they're, they're targeting our community, and then El Piolin, you know, has the, yeah. had this radio station, and <laughs> he's bumping, you know, he's like promoting the marches, and so my parents are talking about it, and then suddenly I'm talking about it, and... Before you know it, we had these walkouts, um, and I'm in the streets with my parents, you know, chanting, like, you know, being out open about our status for the first time ever, and it, like, totally transformed me to see my parents, like, and seeing, I mean, in San Jose, we had, like, tens of thousands of people take wow. over the streets, like, the most public manifestation. Yeah. Um, and when you, when you say criminalized, because a lot of people will say, oh, you're already criminals. What is, what is the differentiating factor like when they enact a bill like that versus you already being undocumented technically? Like, does that mean that enforce, 
there's some extra enforcement or what is like well you know like Im- people forget this now because there has been a lot of criminalization of immigrants yeah which means jail time for being an immigrant okay. and there's different um, not just deportation not just deportation okay. criminal okay. proceedings okay. and okay. what people forget is that immigration is actually civil and it's not supposed to be criminal it's not supposed to lead to detention and okay. detention in the immigration context is actually a constitutional anomaly it's not supposed to be say that again it's a constitutional anomaly it's not like the rule like that you detain people in the civil co- civil context is like you hit you you're like on a in a car and you hit someone else and you sure. sue that person that person doesn't go to jail right you get okay. money you get um, you sue them in, in a civil court. Immigration okay. is civil. It's supposed to be. Okay. And now it's gone so out of hand because we have over 34,000 people that are detained every single day. Um, that I, I think today people think of immigration in the criminal in the criminal sense. Right, and that's super important. And I don't think anybody, honestly, I think the lay person who's not involved in any of this sort of thing doesn't even differentiate. And doesn't even, I will be completely honest and say I have never thought about it that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's gotten out of hand. Yeah. It really has. So with the Sans Brenner bill, what they were doing is if you were here without papers, they could put you in jail for it. Not just deport you, but put you in jail. You'll do, you'll do time. And then after that, they would deport you. Yeah. That sounds like a fucking racket for uh, Wacken Hut and whoever the fuck else prison corporation. That's what that sounds like to me. Yeah. Damn. There's a lot of, there's a lot of money being made off mm-hmm. of all this suffering. I mean, Corrections Corporations of America, Geo Group. They're, they're, I mean, they're the ones that lobbied for, you know, for bills that criminalize, like yeah, that, SB 1070, because, yeah. you know, they, they, they get the benefit from it. They profit from it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think those stocks went up this week. Yeah, they did. They did, they did. right? So if any cruel bastards are out there, <laughs> check your fucking, you know, <laughs> check your portfolio this week. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, okay, so the 2006, that was kind of awakening for you, Luis. Yeah, uh, and I think... F- well, you were, like, how old, like, you were... I was in high school, no. and, you know, I go from being super apolitical and not understanding why my parents worked so much and made no money and why we lived the way we lived, to then politicizing and understanding, and then I go to community college, because in this process, I'm also trying to apply to, uh, to go to college, to go to university, and I had good grades just because that was my cover for all the other bullshit I was doing on the side, you know, like my parents didn't really trip as long as I had good grades. Um, and so I'm applying to school with all my other friends and I had a you know, bunch of, you know, you know, friends that are citizens and they're applying and they're like, dude, you got good grades, like you should be applying too. And I don't have a social security, didn't know how to submit it. And I freaked out. I was like, the whole time I was here, my parents had told me if you study, if you do everything right, you'll, there's a pathway for you. Yeah. And you know, reality hit and, and, and then I was put kind of in the same situation as all the other undocumented people, which is like, there is no way. Um, then kind of fortuitously, I get recruited to community college to go play soccer. So I kind of gave up right after high school, went through like this, like all this anxiety and like panic attacks because I didn't want to confront my parents about like, I don't think I'm gonna go to school. And I'm just like working landscaping with my dad that summer and some coach is like, I'll sign you up. Like, you just come play soccer and, you know, we'll, we'll take care of the rest. And I got into school and uh, met some pretty badass organizers at community college. Uh, this dope organization at De Anza called Students for Justice that I think still reps it. Um, they're still, I think, holding it down. And continued my politicization through that process, met some dope professors that helped me along the way. Learned about AB 540, which gives you in-state tuition um, to undocumented students. It's still a shitload of money. 
Um, but at least you're paying in-state tuition um, yeah. as opposed to out-of-state, which for a while that, that was the case. Um, yeah. It's still an issue for some people that don't meet the residential requirements and, and things like that. But yeah, that was, that's kind of how I got into college. It was a little... Soccer. Once they see you, you're a good, good little Latino soccer player that they want you on their fucking team. It's fucking ridiculous. And then they saw me play and they're like, hey, this guy's got no future. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, I gotta do something else. <laughs> as long as you were in, yeah, you're in. They got good. me in though. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, he's always at protests. He's never at practice, this yeah. son of a bitch. <laughs> he ran all he ran down the street. He's carrying a sign. Go get him. Yeah. So, so you, uh, you went to De Anza, it sounds like, for community college, and then you finished up where, or, or what did you do? I, um, I transferred uh, to UC Berkeley. I, I was tagging along with a really good friend of mine, um, also from San Jose, this indigenous brother, like uh, Najoni, who his parents had come out of the res and went to Stanford, and his dad went to Harvard Law, like straight up like hustled and made it. And they helped him, like, go through community college and then to apply to UC Berkeley. So I tagged along with him and that's how I learned about the whole application process. Like, I mean, fucking my parents didn't know any of that shit. Like, yeah. they didn't know, I mean, they didn't even know what UC Berkeley was. Yeah. They didn't know what the difference between a community college was or a four year was. Yeah. Um, and so I tagged along with him. I got to UC Berkeley and that um, I finished there around 2010. Right. Yeah. And you finished up at uh, Northridge, right? Yeah, Cal State Northridge. Yeah. How'd you jump? How'd you end up at Santa Clara after that? Or what was was there a period of, of time in between that? What were you doing there? And then how'd you end up at Santa Clara? Um, so when I grad when I graduated college, I wanted to go to law school right away because I had a, a scholarship to take a prep course because you have to take the LSAT. LSAT, yeah. Test. Mm-hmm. Um, it was awful. And. Uh, <laughs> But I didn't have the money to go to law school, so I just put it aside. I was very depressed over that. Um, but uh, then Obama wins in 2008, and he starts promising, you know, immigration reform and the DREAM Act and blah, blah, And again, I was naive, and I was like, okay, <laughs> we can make it happen. Um, so I started organizing, and so put law school aside for a while until um, 2013. 2012, I applied in 2012 um, in, to start in 2013. And I applied to different, um, I, didn't, I didn't apply to that many um, law schools, but I mainly applied to um, private law schools. Mm-hmm. And I knew Santa Clara was one of the law schools that had already experienced, um, you know, having undocumented students and they had scholarships. And so mm-hmm. I got really lucky and I got in and um, I was hoping to go to Texas. I don't know why. Uh, St. Mary's is a small Law school. San Antonio? Uh, yeah, in San Antonio. That's a good thing you didn't um, know that. <laughs> You're from Texas, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I know some St. Mary's people, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the look over there just came over your face. Well, <laughs> we won't talk about that. My experience with St. Mary's wasn't that good. Um, the reason I wanted to go there is because I had friends who had gone there who mm. were undocumented and were telling me, oh, there's, there's a lot of support and a oh, lot of cool. financial support, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, I picked up the phone when I um, got admitted and I called the admissions office and I was like, well, I need scholarships and blah, blah, blah. And they were like, we don't have any undocumented students here. 
like they just told me we don't have any undocumented students we don't know what you're talking about mm -hmm. uh you have to be a citizen blah, blah blah and i knew at that moment that was not the right school um but there was a woman at santa clara who right away she emailed me and she was like there's the scholarships we're giving you money um we can try to figure out how to help you more um with uh, other scholarships outside of law school but we also have the jesuits here mm -hmm. who may be able to help you you know reach out to these people and i knew that was the right place for me to um to attend and it became uh the most amazing experience uh in terms of like finding people that were there for me that were very supportive and that continue to be very supportive the law school itself you know going to class and all the exams that was awful but um <laughs> as law school should be yeah, yeah. Law school is tough. <laughs> I, was gonna, I was gonna say like you had fun oh my god no i mean i, I had fun um meeting people and getting yeah. to know people there but you know the, the classes were terrible sometimes yeah and and did you like is there some something specific within the curriculum that you know has been preparing you for or that focuses on what you intend to practice in or um yeah so i want to do immigration law and employment law um yeah. and really where both of those thing, things intersect um, my parents are obviously they're immigrants, they've been working at the same place for 15 years. I mean, they've been pretty lucky in the way that they get treated there, but I've heard some horror stories from other people and that's yeah. what I really want to focus on. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Luis, how did you jump from, well, what was Berkeley like? Because there's the perception of what people Berkeley think is like, but. <laughs> yeah, you know, by the time I got to Berkeley, I, uh, I was a little bit more serious, about, you know, I had this huge opportunity in front of me. It was the economic crisis, 2008, and, yeah. you know, my parents, I think like a lot of immigrants and a lot of working class people across the country got sucked up in the subprime mortgage, you know, scam. And I'd actually had sat with them at that table and I was too young to really know what was happening and, you know, we, we lost all our savings and everything. And, and so my parents are losing their house and I'm at school and, you know, my, my parents are like, like you're it like we came to this country and we have nothing like if we go back we're worse off than when we came here and you're like the only thing that like makes it worth it you know and so I matured and I, I had understood like my parents struggle why they yeah. weren't home because they were working um, why it was like so so rough and why I had tried for years in high school I think to try to escape that reality by you know kind of fucking around fucking around you know <laughs> and yeah. you know but then I get to Berkeley and you know I you know I committed myself to, to studying and I was working full time as a dishwasher at one of the dining commons which helped because I was also getting some free food um, and so I didn't have to pay for food I was staying at a, in a garage um, in North Berkeley with another undocumented student. We were sharing a garage together so we could afford rent. Um, behind on tuition payments the whole time. Um, but working, you know, staying up late to study. And I was in a dish room, big industrial dish room. And so like, I'd be like studying, like, you know, while I was like washing dishes, whenever there was like a little bit like of an ebb in, in the workflow. Um, and then around, you know, I was trying to also organize, you know, around this time I was involved with, with Rising Immigrant Scholars Through Education, which is this undocumented group on campus. Um, I was involved with uh, some other groups that were doing uh, solidarity work with the workers on campus that had various contract fights. Yeah. Um, I was also involved in some of the May 1st committees in San Jose, 
you know, to May 1st, 2006, 2007, I got involved. And then I'm involved in, in, in the May 1st committee in Oakland. Um, so anytime I had a little bit of free time on the weekends, which was rare, uh, I tried to like be involved as much as I could. So that was my life. It was school, it was work, and, and, and it was organizing. Um, the first year there was rough because there, was, there wasn't much of a struggle, really. Like we were, we were out there trying to like keep, uh, keep the message out there, trying to continue to agitate as much as we could. And then 2009 hit. And a big like explosion happens at Berkeley, a student like explosion of just mass protest. Uh, we have like five thousand students that hit the you know that hit the streets in September of two thousand nine around the budget cuts mm-hmm. and being undocumented. You know like tuition hikes were like mm-hmm. hurting us the most. Um, and so uh, you know had some involvement with that, um, and that really kept me energized. Like seeing that there was other people that were kind of joining in the fight. Because for a while there, you know, people had been demobilized, especially after Obama. There was like, Obama was elected and people had all these hopes in Obama. And other of us, you know, you know, had more, more hesitations. And then yeah. around 2009, when the economic crisis hit and really and people were feeling it, to see people kind of rely on themselves to, to make change and, and, and to look to the community for change, I think was really, really inspiring. And that got me through my last year. Um, when I was like really running out of steam. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think the perception to a lot of outsiders is like, okay, there's all these kids or whatever at Berkeley, like let them just do their thing, <laughs> right? You're just over there and you're like Berkeley bubble, like doing your thing. Like how, how do you, how does that, how important is it for those movements that seem to be relatively pocketed? Yeah. Like how do you think that can grow? And how, how did you see it manifest itself outside of that? Yeah, so one of the things that from the outset that I was trying to do was like link the struggle on campus to the struggle in the community or bring the struggle actually, a better way of putting this is bring the struggle in the community onto campus and to like understand the privilege that we did have being at Berkeley, that it is like a very, it's, it's a bubble, you're at this prestigious university. Um, so we linked up with the struggle in Oakland, you know, we linked up with the immigrant community in San Francisco and in the mission. And you know, in 2008, there is this wave of raids that actually hit the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm. A couple of restaurants got hit um, with raids, and the community actually organized a. I think it was one of the first times that the ICE building in San Francisco was shut down, and and we had all these like high school kids walk out, and we had a contingent from Berkeley that walked out. But it was the community that was leading it, and it was us as Berkeley students leveraging whatever privilege that we had at school mm-hmm. to support that struggle. And so we like left campus and said like, there's a struggle outside of this school um, that's happening in the streets. The school at that time wasn't, like I said, too politicized. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until 2009, but the community was because there was these raids that had just hit. So when you're talking about those raids, like do you remember like how big that was? Like in terms of numbers, like how many people? I think, I don't think it was that many people. I think it might've been like, a, I mean, I mean, about a dozen maybe. El yeah. Balazo was one of the restaurants that got hit in, in the Lower Haight. And it wasn't the, the sheer number of people that were impacted as much as the fact that it had come to the Bay Area, yeah. which had been a sanctuary city. Um, and people, f- at least here, f- felt more protected in yeah. a time when under Bush in 2007, there's these raids that are happening across the country, these work raids, these workplace raids. Yeah. And we were, I think the Bay Area felt like we were a bit in a bubble and then it, come, it kind of came home and we felt the need to respond and saying like, 
you know, it's hap- it's, it was happening somewhere else and we weren't doing anything about it. Yeah. And now it's home, you know, we, yeah. we, 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 gotta, we gotta address it. There's, there's a, obviously in the last few days, there's been talk of, you know, mayors in certain municipalities or whatever um, proclaiming their commitment to remaining sanctuary cities. What does that literally in the most practical terms mean? And does that differ from city to city? Or I, from what I understand, it's got to do with federal funds and getting local law enforcement involved. Is that, or what, is there a, yeah. a definition of a sanctuary city or? Yeah, I mean, sanctuary cities, you know, they, the history of the sanctuary city movement actually goes back to the, you know, to the 80s when Central Americans were coming. And uh, churches and then cities were saying, we're not going to participate in this unjust targeting of immigrants, some of the most vulnerable people in our community. And what we're going to do is we're going to provide a safe haven. And there's different ways that that, that that works. At the church level, what that means is they'll house immigrants at a church. And when ICE comes, they'll keep them out. Um, at the city level, as it grew... Like, like physically keep ICE out of the church? Yeah. And there's, you know, and there's constitutional right protections under the fourth amendment like you can't come in without a warrant and ice never gets warrants because they're like this rogue agency that just doesn't like to follow the law and i wish i was exaggerating when i say that but i don't <laughs> they really don't get they no what what right do they have to come into a business then they they don't i mean they could ask the owner and the owner could let people in because he he or she technically owns right the business um but no one people have the right not to talk to them right. and you know meeting the threshold of of reasonable suspicion that someone is undocumented dovetails like the racial profiling that often happens um but you know without anyone letting them in they can't come in and if they do come in you know people have the right to remain silent and not say anything um and ice will violate a lot of those rights anyways because they'll look at someone they'll racially profile someone and they say this person speaks spanish and therefore i'm going to make an assumption that that person's an immigrant and detain that person um so there's you know the the level of unconstitutional violations that ICE carries out on a daily basis, and the lack of oversight to make sure that that they're that they're put into line is just non-existent. And mm-hmm. and I, what's been working more is to educate the community about their rights. Right. So there's nothing stronger than like having someone that's at a house saying you're not coming in without a warrant, and I'm not going to talk to you, and you cannot prove that I'm an immigrant without me telling you that. You know, right, and and that's there's been a lot happening in the last decade, a lot of know your rights trainings. Yeah, um, but it's scary, you know, when ICE comes to your door and 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 they use all these tactics to to trick people into coming out. They'll tell them like, oh, we're gonna tow your car. We're here for some other person. Where they'll 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 pretend, you know, that they're police officers. They do all these things. Or they just knock on your door without any uniform, so you can't tell mm-hmm. that they're uh, ICE agents. You know, yeah, so. yeah. They use different tricks. Huh. Yeah. Well, let's go back to Berkeley. You finished at Berkeley in what, like, what year? 2010. Um, I finished in 2010. I continued to work uh, at the dining commons. Uh, you know, I'm like washing dishes, and luckily, we had a union that you know we had asked me 32.99. That was pretty organized, and they had a clause in the contract. I gave pretty good uh, wages to students who, even though we weren't technically in a union, were getting good wages. So like I was able to save up a lot of money um, just working, like doing as much overtime as I could and save up for law school and did that for two years. Just lived like this, like being cheap, frugal, like not spending any money, working and 
So you, let, you stayed in, in living in Berkeley, washing dishes at the Dining Commons yeah. for two years after you graduated. Yeah, and at this time, you know, I th- it's fucking crazy. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have a Berkeley. I, I have a Berkeley degree. Were you running a big Hobart? <laughs> Were you, no, you guys didn't have. Did you guys have the convey? I worked at a hospital one year, yeah. uh, in the in the, the the dining services thing, like one I think for four months, and we had one of these conveyor belt Hobarts. Oh, we had that, yeah. yeah. And like we would have basically, you know, not a competition, but we were just trying to leave because I it was like I worked for four hours. Like I would get there at four thirty after uh, this is my senior year of high school. I'd get there at four thirty, and technically the shift was over at eight thirty. But I just wanted to get the fuck home. I had like homework or whatever, yeah. so we would, we would. I was doing like four plates at a time, and we were stacking this Hobart and just trying to get them out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we had we had the same conveyor belt system. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's a. That's a tough job. That's not a fun job. Uh, but I, I'd say out of like, if I could take something from my Berkeley experience, was working with those people there. Yeah. Like the, the there's, you know, we had a lot of immigrants that worked there and from various backgrounds, not just yeah. Latinos. You know, like a lot of Asian immigrants, yeah. Filipino immigrants, um, and a very like working class, like very diverse working class um, kitchen, like black, white working alongside each other and like. Yeah. Um, just like seeing like working with ordinary people when you're at this like pretty prestigious school like kept me grounded and like yeah at a time when you know people were hurting in the economic crisis like kind of I think kept me you know kept me real and, and and gave me perspective to not get ahead of myself yeah when I when I got to uh Stanford my freshman year my first job was in the I was a hasher which is what they called what you're serving the food oh yeah, yeah. and uh and I got I got to hash in the own my the dorm that I lived in, and so I would work. Um, I think I worked a couple of dinner shifts, and then I definitely worked like the brunch or you know breakfast shifts on the weekends. Mm-hmm. And so I would have to wake up, you know, at like seven thirty and serve my hungover dorm mates <laughs> their fucking breakfast. <laughs> I did that. For, I only did it for uh, you know like a quarter and a half or something, and then I found like some job in the Spanish department or something like that, but. It was pretty like depressing, quite frankly. To, yeah. For like, I would like literally walk down, and I'd be down there, and you know, there's all Mexicanos down there, and yeah. you know, we're they're like getting all the food, putting it out, or whatever, and then here come my fucking dorm mates, all fucking pedos, like, serving them. Like, yeah, I wish someone served me. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I feel that. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And and how did you end up? Or, you went to Columbia, right? Or, or I went to NYU. NYU. Yeah. Okay. How did that come about? Or? I I applied to like as many law schools, um, a lot of private schools for the same reasons. Yeah. You know that at least I've mentioned, because um, the public schools just a lot of times didn't accept you know applications from undocumented students. Stanford was one of them, um, and so I I applied as far as you know. As, like, as far as possible, just as many you know universities as possible, knowing that I would have to negotiate with the schools because a lot of times they didn't know like what does it mean to be undocumented? How are you going to practice law? Like it's it's this irony, right? Like you're yeah. trying to practice law when like your entire life the law has done everything to try to erase your existence, you know, and and people had a lot of trouble understanding that, um, and at the same time being like that's one of the prime motivations to. Try again to law to understand right. like something that has defined your and your community's experience for years, and yeah. um, and I lucked out, you know, really like really really fortunate. Like 
and getting into Berkeley too, I think, you know, I've had more than like my fair share of good fortune. Um, it sounds like your friend Nizoni. Like, yeah, he, I mean, it's like usually one person who ends up being kind of like somebody who started like the domino effect, you know, who opens some one door and then you're like, Oh shit. Like there's a little bit of more credibility and then it kind of just starts snowballing from there. So, yeah. And this kid, I mean, he's like one of the smartest, like, people I've ever met you know and most political too you know he's like indigenous pride from the outset you know and like under like didn't buy like you know a lot of the bs um under bush and he you know he's always been kind of like an inspiration so like yeah that guy's I I owe him a lot yeah um and then NYU you know I I lucked out in that there was this uh institute the Latino Institute for Human Rights that was giving full rights scholarships to people that wanted to to serve the Latino community. <clears throat> and that's, you know, that's the reason I went to law school was to try to really grapple with the law and, and see how I could be a better, you know, resource for, for my community and my people. Yeah. Um, and I applied for it. I go through, you know, they, they fly me out to, to New York, which was nuts, you know, like being in this huge city, you know, like this concrete jungle, um, you know, going from like a town in, in Culiacan, you know, this, I grew up in, in the countryside of maybe 40 people, um, you know, by this El Cerro de la Chiva, where like, you know, like, it's like legend, you know, when I talk when my parents talk about it. And then I go from that to like this humongous city, you know, like 8 million people and like getting lost in the subways. And uh, it was just, it was something else. And I interviewed, I interviewed for, for, the, uh, for the scholarship like way over my head, like everyone that I met there was like so overqualified, like their parents were judges, their parents were like (laughs) politicians somewhere or had people had traveled to Africa or like they were like, they spent time in Chile and they had done all these great things. And I'm like, man, I have no shot at this. Um, And I interviewed and I didn't know this, but like, you know, they didn't call me for like a month. I was like, I didn't get this. And at that point, that was the only place I was gonna give me a full ride everywhere else that I'd gone in, had you know had given me like two thirds of a full ride. Where else? What else were you considering? Like, what were your top three or four? Uh, yeah. So Harvard gave me a two thirds scholarship, which I still had to pay not only living expenses, but then on top of that, about fifteen to twenty thousand um, dollars a year. And so yeah. like that was just not gonna happen. Um, had gone into and just so people know like the reason that can't happen is you cannot get loans you can't get loans if you're undocumented obviously some people are probably like oh that's fucking deal but yeah you can't get a fucking loan people so that is the challenge here 15 grand a year is a fucking big deal if you can't get a loan yeah yeah yeah. and you can't really work your first year like every like that was my plan i was like i'm gonna work and they're like everyone i talked to is like you're crazy like you can't do that like you're gonna flunk out of law school and it makes sense. I mean, when yeah, right, yeah, it's tough. You can't do anything other than just study. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I ended up getting the scholarship because, so I, I guess they not they the, the committee that interviewed me, um, were like let's, they they selected me and then the firm that was actually paying the school the money, said you can't give it to him. He's it's unclear whether he's ever going to be able to practice law. And there was a clause in the scholarship right. that said you have to like serve them, the, the, the Latino community by practicing, you know, something public interest, interest related. Right. 
And so like, he's not going to be able to practice. He's going to like default on, on like the requirement for, for the scholarship. And the scholars that were there, uh, two in particular, this, this guy named Jordan Wells and, and, and Maria Romani, um, who were current scholars in the Institute uh, and who also had like this organizing background, organized like petitions with some of the professors in the immigrant rights clinic. Wow. And like basically pressured, you know, the school and saying like, how can you say, you know, NYU's model is like, you know, a private law school in the public interest. They're like, your model's bullshit if you're not giving this guy a scholarship. <laughs> and they, yeah, they, they held the fire to their feet and, and, and then I get a call like about a month later and they're like, yeah, you're getting it. I was like, man, I God thought man. I was going back to washing dishes. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> yeah. That's fucking nuts. Yeah. That is pretty nuts. That is pretty nuts, man. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so you spent three three years in New York. Just your three years, or three years? Yeah. yeah, yeah, three years. Um, yeah, th- there were you know like this. Beth was saying it's like law school is like it's alienating. I think at least for me, I'll speak for myself. Like it was really alienating. Like your everything that you thought was wrong with the system you start to learn it's like exactly how the system is supposed to work. And, you know, you learn... You know, what do you mean by that? Like, in a practical sense, this is like an example or something? So, like, immigration, you know, it's like, a, it's, like, it's like an example and, like, trying to find ways, like, how can the law help my people? You know, maybe there's a way for me to adjust status. Maybe there's a way for, my, for me to, like, help my parents adjust status so they could, you know, become lawful and, and gain maybe, per, you know, permanent residence or something. And there's no way. You know, or you look at, you know, you look at, you know, the way the Constitution is written and you look the way that, like, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, which are supposed to be, like, these, you know, the hallmark of, like, due process and, like, constitutional rights, individual rights of, like, equal protections, you know, that you can't be discriminated on. And the way, like, the Supreme Court has interpreted those things to basically turn them into their opposite, where now, like, the Equal Protections Clause, for example, the only thing that it's invalidating are laws that are supposed to protect people of color. So, like, affirmative action type laws are trying to remedy past discrimination. And so these laws are supposed to remedy past discrimination are now being used to protect white privilege, right? So literally you see, you learn, you know, I'm reading all these laws and I'm just like, this is the most depressing, the most depressing thing I've ever had to read. <laughs> Why did I go Why to did, law school? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and. I want my money, oh wait, it's not my money. I want, yeah, I'm getting this back. Yeah. I don't want this anymore. Yeah, can I cash out, can I get cash? Can I just go to creative writing with this <laughs> scholarship? I'd like to express my angst a little better. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Did you? How was? How was your experience? I mean, it was the same. Um, the first year was really tough because I was the only undocumented student. I don't know about you, but I was the only undocumented student in my class. Yeah. Um, and I mean, everyone knew I was undocumented because coming into law school, I basically <laughs> left the country. A month before starting law school um, as part of this campaign called the bring the home campaign to basically bring back undocumented youth who Mm -hmm. grew up in the US but were in Mexico because either their family had been deported because they have been forced to basically leave um, hoping that in Mexico they were gonna have a better life a better chance of actually using their degrees or going to college uh, and then realizing that it was just not gonna happen and they wanted to come home so I essentially left the country with two other uh, organizers we met with the students uh, and then we walked to the border and asked the border patrol to basically allow us to come home so it was a very big deal and everyone knew about it so my the entire school 
um, knew that I wasn't documented. And I didn't mind that. But it was interesting because I definitely felt isolated. But I also think I isolated myself um, yeah. a little bit because I didn't want to be there my first year. Like, I was so excited to start law school. But after spending 17 days in detention with many other women, uh, mothers who were hoping to see their children soon, who were fighting their deportation cases, had been fighting and de being detained for several months and even years, I wanted to actually stay in detention to um, help them out, to figure out a way to get their stories out, to make sure that people were paying attention to what, what was happening in detention and uh, Eloy, uh, the Eloy Detention Center, which is a private... Um, Where is that? It, it's in Arizona. Okay. Yeah, it is a so private So where did you cross center. the border and what happened there? Like what, literally like when you crossed like... Yeah, so we presented ourselves at the border um, wearing caps and gowns and with like community from Nogales, something very interesting happened. We were not thinking, we definitely didn't think that we're gonna have a lot of support on the Mexican side, but people from Nogales and from other other places actually came and rallied with us and we actually marched around town and Nogales on the, Me on the Mexican side. And then we finally made it to the, to the uh, port of entry and we presented ourselves at the border. We said that we wanted to come home, that we wanted to, we wanted the government to um, give us humanitarian, humanitarian parole. Um, we were detained right away. We spent, we were processed, we weren't sure what was gonna happen, um, but we were sent to a detention center, uh, Eloy in, in Arizona. Uh, it's a private detention center. We spend there 17 days. And then uh, with a lot of organizing from the community from really all over the country, with a lot of uh, media attention, national, international media attention, and with actual uh, support from members of Congress, mm. we were able to come home. Um, so I was released like three days before starting law school. Oh shit. So <laughs> I went home, um, I hugged my parents, I packed my bags, and I came to law school. Um, so I definitely felt really isolated um, because in the back of my mind I was always thinking about these women and I, I still remember the names uh, even to this day I still remember their faces and I think about them a lot um, and I wonder where they are what they're doing hoping that they were able to go home to their kids and to their families but I'm probably never gonna know so you showed up to law school after being in, <laughs> in the uh, detainment center and then you had a bunch of other kids who's some of them maybe their parents were paying for their law school and everything oh yeah yeah i mean same as uh a lot of the um, students are or my classmates were very privileged kids i mean they were they were actually nice kids but they yeah. were very privileged their yeah. parents were paying for the law school um some of their parents were judges some of them were um law professors or attorneys and you know their grandparents donated money to the university blah blah, blah. Yeah. different things that yeah. it just like i knew i couldn't really relate to them and i only had a, a half scholarship so i still had to pay for the rest of my tuition so my parents helped me i had worked and saved up some money and uh, i fundraised like i started this um campaign online for people to pitch in um they did so my first year i literally paid it with a lot of help from the community yeah uh, otherwise there was just no way um and it wasn't until my second year that i received a full ride yeah crazy it's a good thing about being a badass organizer you get to organize some funds <laughs>
people, this is the right thing to use GoFundMe yeah. for. Yeah. You don't need it for your bullshit, like bouncy house or something. <laughs> like, law school is okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, no rims, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, how to use GoFundMe 101. Right. It works. It definitely yeah. works. Yeah. yeah. That 2013 action, though, you know, speaking of being isolated um, from just coming out of a detention center and going to law school, I had just f- finished, or I was, I think, finishing on my first, oh, no, I just finished on my first year of law school. And there's this huge radicalization that happens after DACA is passed because um, people are like, we want more. That's, you know, DACA was like for a yeah. very privileged few, the, you know, what they called the well deserving, you know, young, you know, kids that were brought here when they're like, you know, like our age. And there's this radicalization that's happening saying like, no, we want, you know, deferred action for all our families, for everyone that's yeah. here. And, you know, one of the first actions that I, that I heard about, and this is actually the first time I heard about Lisbeth, was the Dream 9 action, when she decided to go to Mexico and, you know, risk never being able to come back to the country, leaving everything, leaving, you know, her acceptance into a law school, her enrollment in a law school. Um, and I just see, like these nine individuals putting themselves in the line to expand and to push the envelope, you know, at at that, at that moment in time when so many people in the dreamer movement were content with what Obama had given them and, and to continue to push that really inspired me and seriously considered like, I should not be in law school right now. I should be out there. I should be organizing. Um, And, you know, fast forward, you know, three years and, and some time, you know, to then be able to like work with Lisbeth, it's been like, it's like great. an honor. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't. He's for my her. attorney, actually. Yeah, but she gave me DACA, so. <laughs> Wait, what? what? She's one of the key leaders. I like right. her and a bunch of other people were, you know, did all these direct actions. You didn't, you skipped through that too. See what I mean? Yeah. She like was sitting at Senator McCain's office. There's all these other activists that were sitting in uh, on Obama's. Um, campaign offices that led him to to pass or to enact deferred action yeah yeah what um what was the is there some way to kind of summarize how daca came about like a quick way and then maybe just a quick like what is daca um yeah i think i mean i I think a lot of people give so much credit credit to obama as being the mastermind behind daca that it came out of the goodness of his heart but it really didn't i mean uh i think it was around 2009 that we really started doing um, campaigns to stop the deportation of immigrant youth. So I think it was a series of events, right? Like we start doing this very public campaigns to stop deportations of undocumented youth, dreamers, um, started using that image a little bit of like, oh, the the young kid who came here when he was very young, uh, the sort of deserving kid, blah, blah, blah. Uh, to actually moving into stopping deportations of our parents and then yeah. stopping deportations of uh, people who had criminal convictions. Um, because the idea um, for many of us is that um, if you commit a crime and you go to jail, okay, you, you pay for your, for your mistakes, sure. right? But deportation uh, on top of that, that's additional punishment that shouldn't happen. Sure. Um, and unfortunately that, that does. And so we started working around this, um, this campaigns 
uh, infiltrating detention centers as well. So like mm -hmm. immigrant youth actually going into detention, mm -hmm. putting themselves at risk and putting themselves in deportation proceedings, and still dealing with some of those deportation proceedings to this day to try to organize inside. Um, so it's an escalation of like different things um, because we understood that we had a lot of privilege and we had to use that privilege, right? Um, in putting pressure and really highlighting the crisis that existed in our community. And yep. I think at that point is when uh, Obama or someone in the administration kind of realized, okay, well, we gotta do something for, for, for these kids. But I think the other thing that doesn't get, get um, talked about a lot is that the Republicans in 2012 were actually uh, drafting a version of the DREAM Act to put on the floor of the Senate. And it was Rubio, and it was Kyle from Arizona, and it was um, uh, Hutchinson from Texas who were drafting this bill. And the Democrats mm -hmm. didn't want that because they wanted to keep the Dream Act for themselves to keep you know that sort of credit for being the so-called like pro-immigrant yeah. party. And I think that's what really pushed Obama to say, okay, let me give them something, and maybe they'll come down a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It. But what you were just saying right now, really, one of the things stood out to me that was like you were saying that you were privileged enough to do this, but the only you mean you were only being privileged because you were a youth and you were like kind of not being like attacked as much, right? <laughs> Which is like you're still not privileged in any in any legal way. Oh, yeah. You're not privileged in any legal way. You're just perceived uh, it, it differently, and so you're not going to be pursued potentially as much. You're uh, you're treated with kindness, let's say, maybe. Um, yeah, that's wild. But I, I think you, you guys are both um, intelligent enough and looking at the long game enough that you stuck with law school because <laughs> this is definitely a bigger, uh, you know, a marathon and not a, you know, not even a, it, it's definitely not just a foot race. It is a long, long marathon. Um, so DACA came about in 2012, right? Yes. Right. And how long did you, um, and DACA basically gives, uh, for those of you who don't know, if you meet the conditions, meaning you were, you know, brought over here before you were, what, how old? 16. Um, and, and a number of other details like that. But that's the main thing is you were brought over as a child, right? Uh, and there's a bunch of some, some other details. But basically, you, yeah, you graduated from high school, maybe you're going to go to college. Um, you get a work permit and you get effectively protected from deportation, right? Yeah, but there's no two years, and then you have to reapply, yes. right? Um, how did you apply immediately? You applied when you were in law school, Luis, or? Yeah, I waited, you know, it was this kind of new creature, um, and there was hesitations because of how limited it was. When people were asking for deferred action, it was actually more, it was deferred action for everyone, moratorium on, you know, for all the raids. Yeah. Um, and there was hesitation because you had to expose yourself to the government that up to this point under Obama had done nothing but deport and detain our communities. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Because the thing is, like, I hear that a lot. I hear it amongst people involved in this. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, honestly, the media does not cover this. I have not heard about, hey, like, I, used, I feel like I used to hear about that when I was a kid. I'm, like, older than you. I don't know. I'm, I'm 39, and I feel like I used to hear about that in the 80s. Or used to read about that, and my parents would say, "Oh, like this is fabrica, you know, they fucking busted it, or that sort of shit." And this was like early '80s when I was a little kid, but I feel like I don't remember. I, you know, I can't even remember hearing about stuff like that. You hear about the statistic, 
Yeah. But you never, I never hear about the details. Yeah, Obama perfected the, the art of, of detaining and deporting people. Uh, it was very public under Bush because he was doing the workplace raids. Um, but Obama developed a sophisticated system that interconnected any sort, of, any sort of contact with the police, where you get your biometrics taken. All that information immediately goes to the federal government. And this didn't exist before. And he Did really... It, is it not, not trying to uh, give Obama any benefit of the doubt, but is this a technological jump that was just there when he got there and available to him? And, or was it an aggressive, you know, to look at it like from a, a you know, like is, was the technology just better in place by the time Obama got there? No, I think it was part of his policy. I think that yeah. he... He was playing politics that he didn't want to look soft on immigration and he he honestly didn't care um he promised a lot and did not none of it you know the democrats had both houses majority in both houses there was no excuse but again this is the economic crisis and he right. you know the the ruling class had certain interests the bankers capital had certain interests and that, that became his priority was bailing out the banks um giving them trillions of dollars in, in handouts and immigration became secondary in a time when you know there's unemployment and there's already a tendency to scapegoat the most vulnerable in the working class which you know are immigrants and he played politics and he played along with I'm gonna detain and deport you know this this kind of surplus mm. um, and he you know very like intelligently connected all these different agencies so it was very purposeful that's why it wasn't just a technology got it, got it. he coordinated um you know all these different agencies with with local governments and, lo and local law enforcement um through you know something that bush things that bush had started from like the you know you know secure communities which is not what it sounds like <laughs> you know republicans are very good at like at, at framing things um and then from that, you know, to using, you know, uh, you know, this, this detainer policy where if someone was any, you know, in a jail, that person would be immediately transferred over to immigration. And so there was no longer a need to, to raid the workplaces publicly, right? Where there's this huge, you know, uproar right. about them coming to someone's work, coming to someone's house. But right? is, is, it's, is it like physically like, is it people who you said are contacting or somehow engaging with the criminal justice system? Yeah, and you know, the, you know it just compounds, like Lizbeth was making this point, it compounds the problems of the criminal justice system in a society that, that relies on over-policing of communities of color, right? Commu you know, immigrants are gonna get caught up, right? If you ask a mom, their young kid is gonna get pulled over, young kid's gonna get pulled over for possession, it's gonna get put into the system for that because of the over-policing and the over-criminalization of black and brown bodies. And then that then leads to like, what is a double jeopardy, right? You do your time for the criminal conviction. And then on top of that, now you have immigration consequences, even though you did your time, right? In a civil system that's not supposed to criminalize you, right? But we've gone so far away from that that now that is the rule, right? So any contact with it, oftentimes it's just an arrest. Even if they drop the charges, ICE will come pick you, you up. Drive it on a license. Yeah. So how does that like literally work? Like, let's say uh, you're undocumented, you get pulled over, you don't have a license. Do they 
is that something you can get actually taken into jail for? Is it, or is that just a citation? So you get taken to jail? You can. I mean, it, it, varies. Places, yeah. Yeah. it varies by locality. Some okay. localities like won't use their resources on that, but places like Arizona, we're doing it. Um, and a place like Alabama, we're doing it. Yeah. Um, and so localities were able to like have these agreements with ICE where they were targeting immigrants, they were putting them into the, into the criminal justice system, and then immigration was picking them up, detaining them, and then deporting them. Um, and it was all hidden, and it was all under the guise of we're deporting criminals. And one thing, it used to be, well, Obama said that it was a voluntary program, that if the state signed on to this program, right. that they could later basically leave. And when some of the states started to try to leave, <laughs> he didn't want to. Like, the DHS basically was like, no, this is a mandatory program. So hmm. essentially, he kind of tricked the states, um, like California, into signing up to this program and then essentially criminalizing uh, or targeting communities of color, um, immigrants, for various reasons, even if there was no conviction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so as, as Obama starts, you know, creating his own, you know, strategies for how to detain and deport more people in a way that's low-key, you know, it's yeah. now in public, the community then responded to that tactic, too. And because it is a voluntary program, the federal government can't commandeer local law enforcement to carry yeah. out a federal program, like basic Tenth Amendment. And so what organizers start doing is they start fighting around sanctuary cities, right. saying we're not going to hand over people to ICE, we're not going to give people's immigration status over to ICE. And that's where the community then also adjusted to the tactics um, of Obama. And, you know, we threw a wrench in the machine. And now Obama has, you know, thrown another, another tactic with, with priority enforcement program, where instead of detaining people directly, he's asking for notifications because detainers, this detaining system of like someone goes to jail and then from that jail you get, trans- you get transferred over. Um, or they hold, they hold, the jail holds you until immigration comes and picks you up was actually ruled unconstitutional on a bunch of federal mm-hmm. courts because there's no, you know, you know, there's no, um, um, the word is escaping me here. Um, uh, there's no probable cause, sure. right, at that point. There's no reason to hold a person past their conviction mm-hmm. and their sentence, their regular criminal sentence, yeah. because ICE, when they, they issue a detainer, they don't have probable cause for that because they don't go to judges. All right. Right, so it was unconstitutional. At that point, you're holding someone longer than you're supposed to, and that's unconstitutional, right? There was no probable cause to hold someone longer because ICE decided that you know you were an immigrant. They didn't prove it. There was mm. no evidence for it, mm. just because in some system it showed that you know you didn't have you didn't have status. Mm. Um, and so federal courts, you know, got rid of the detainer policy. This policy where the, the criminal courts and the criminal and the jails hold people beyond their sentence, right? Um, for ICE to come pick them up, they ruled that unconstitutional, right? The jail sentence, you have, you have probable cause to hold someone up until the jail sentence. A day after that, it's, an, it's a constitutional violation. And so now there's no, long, there's no longer detainers in some rare circumstances. Um, I think they still use them. But now they have this thing called notifications. They're like, we're not asking the jails to, to detain someone. All we're asking is for them to tell us when the person's being released. And so they're adjusted their, their strategy to like the communities, you know. Um, uh, so yeah, the so. person is free or on the street, if you will. Technically. Technically. Though they get you as literally as you're walking out the door. Oh, really? And sometimes they'll delay your release to wait for ICE to come pick you up. And there's been some, you know, some, some cases around that. 
Yeah. And I think this shows what Ms. Uh, was talking about, that it's not just, uh, you know, the technology. Yeah. It's really intentional. Yeah, and Obama yeah. has been mm-hmm. very, very smart in finding yeah. ways um, mm-hmm. to detain and deport people without making this big show, without really... Because I think that if people knew what was happening, if it was, it was actually, like, public, and yeah. sort of like the raids, people would react. Just yeah. like they're reacting to the elections now, right? Yeah. Um, but that's not happening. And it's yeah. because a lot of people just don't know. It happens in the middle of the night. I mean, some mm-hmm. jails release um, mm-hmm. uh, pe- individuals at like 3 a.m. in the morning, and that's when they get picked up by mm-hmm. ICE. Yeah. Huh. And what's good, I think, about places, at least here in Santa Clara, uh, because a lot of the work, like, for example, that Debug has done here, you know, mm-hmm. who, who's just right next door, um, and other community members with, uh, with the Fire Coalition, is that we have a sanctuary city in Santa Clara, and same thing in San Francisco, um, where there is no notifications. You're not supposed to let ICE know. And so what happens in, in, in Santa Clara and in San Francisco is that ICE has to like then find you at your house and come to your house, which is a very different dynamic when ICE has to come to the community because in the communities where we're stronger, right? That's A, you have Fourth Amendment and Fifth Amendment rights to like keep the door closed and to not talk to ICE if you know your rights. And you also have the power to organize the community when ICE comes and organize a rally and confront them and to record them and to like make sure that they're exposed for all the tactics that they're using. And this is something that the community right now, at least in these places where we have Sanctuary City, is really using the, f- the fact that we've thrown a wrench at, the, at this pipeline from the criminal justice system into the immigration system um, and using the fact that they're coming to the community to detain people to leverage community power at that yeah. point of contact. You know? and, and this is something that's still developing and, and there's other places where you know, they're still at the point of fighting for sanctuary to begin with. What, ha- what, what has to happen for a city to effectively like, you know, become a sanctuary city? I mean... Um, yeah, they, they got to pass an ordinance. You know, an the, ordinance. Yeah, the city's like Board of Supervisors you know, passes an ordinance saying we're not going to disclose immigration status to, um, you know, to, to ICE. Um, although that information gets disclosed to ICE automatically now, actually. When you get fingerprinted, all that stuff goes to them. What they're not disclosing is the time of release. That's like the key, the key thing. Yeah, it's an intricate system. Obama, you know, credit to him, but, you know, we're, 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 we're working to stop it. <laughs> so right now, uh, Elizabeth, you're appealing or you're going through DACA proceedings. So just so you know, like Luis ended up getting DACA. And from what I understand, you did that because you wanted to practice. Yeah. And you, you need a work permit. <laughs> you need to be, uh, you know, uh, documented to practice law, which makes perfect sense. But now you are representing Liz for her DACA proceedings. And it sounds like you're, there's some kind of bullshit going on there that's kind yeah. of... <laughs> I don't know how much you guys can talk about that, but how long has it been going on? We've gone public with it. Yeah, no, it's um, it's very public. Okay. Um, yeah. No, I applied for DACA in 2015. So after I came back, I actually had an asylum case because um, we ended up applying for asylum. Um, right. In my case, out of the nine of us who crossed the border, uh, my case was the only one that was administratively closed by the government. So the government essentially said, we don't want to pursue depression proceedings against you. And this was the second time that my depression proceedings had been administratively closed. Um, so then I decided to apply for DACA because I was like, well, I'm going to graduate next year, so I need a work permit. I want to yeah. work. Um, I applied in October 2015, and I didn't hear back until uh, the week after graduation. Um, literally. Of June. 
uh, it was uh, yeah first yeah. week of June so yeah. I graduated um, at the end of May and first week of June I hear from them and basically uh, they sent me this letter saying that they had an intent to deny my application because of my exit in 2013 so then I got in contact with Pangea which is where the Sanchez works and I was like hey this is happening can you guys represent me because I need to respond um, within 30 days and it happens that I'm actually studying for the bar right now and I don't have time for this yeah. so he came at a like, perfect time I'm kind of busy yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be an attorney um, it was the worst timing oh um, so we spent a month working with Los Angeles with Nilu um, trying to figure out how to respond to this thing and, uh, and like literally how does what does that mean like you, there's a brief or like a document a response uh, Los Angeles put an amazing uh, response what is it 90 pages yeah. something like that um, showing everything we could at them yeah <laughs> um, you have to get creative with it it, it was it wow. was a very interesting process because I had to explain everything I think that was the most annoying thing yeah. for me nothing against you but like we spent so many hours on the phone me explaining like everything like every detail from when I was born until the very last you know moment that I've been in this country and all the reasons for leaving and what I was doing in Mexico, like really trying to explain um, why I should still be granted DACA because, so DACA is a discretionary program. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's important for people to understand that essentially someone looks at your application and based on everything that you've provided them, decides whether you should be granted DACA or not. Um, so there's, I mean, there are certain requirements, so I meet all the requirements. But um, then it's discretionary it's based discretion. on your situa- yeah. situ- situ- situation. Right, yeah. so it's, it's yeah. up to the discretion of one individual who looks at your application. And so at that point, um, they, they gave me 33 days to respond. So we responded, we went public with it. Um, around the time that we responded to the notice of intent to deny, um, I had a lot of support from my uh, law school, from friends, uh, people in the community. And there was some media attention as well, but I was very, uh, I really wanted to just take the bar. Um, so I went back to try to study for the bar. Uh, things didn't work out, so I ended up not taking the bar. And then in September, I get another letter basically stating the same thing, that they had intent to deny me because of my exit. Um, so this time, we also had to like get, sort of, you know, jump on the phone and figure out well, how, do we, how we're going to respond. Um, so we responded uh, again with, I don't know how many pages, um, but at the same time we launched a campaign in a petition online and um, sign on letters. So professors, law school professors, attorneys um, sign on to this letter uh, more than 250 within like two days um, from really all over the country and uh, organizations from also all over the country sign on to a letter, members of Congress. I think I have like six or seven letters now. Um, from members of Congress, not just in California, but like in Arizona as well, um, people who, who understand that what they're really trying to do is punish me for leaving for and for the way that I came back, right? That it was very public. It was around yeah. um, uh, a very public campaign and it was around my activism. And that's the reason that I think they want to punish me and deny me DACA. Mm-hmm. And I think in the, in the background of Lisbeth's case, what I think was looming was her political activism. Yeah. That... They're saying, well, we had, DACA had passed in 2012. Why didn't you just apply for DACA, apply for advanced parole, and get a travel document to go to Mexico and then come back? That obviously wasn't the point, right? The point was to challenge the system and to go and to, and to push the boundary. And I think they were upset about that. Yeah. They, didn't, they didn't like you did that at all. Um, and, but, you know, like Lisbeth said, you know, the, 
the real irony in this case is that DACA is discretionary and what we used in the second brief was the legal arguments that the Department of Justice used actually in the case Texas v. United States for DAPA, which is the new program that, that Obama uh, enacted for um, parent, parents of U.S. citizen children or, uh, or, or green card holders. Um, and the argument there was, look, we're not going to just like give every, first it's not status, it's discretionary. All we're saying is like we can't deport everyone, so we're not going to deport these people. It's a case-by-case basis. We look at all the factors. It's an individualized assessment. And we made that same argument back to USCIS, which is you know the agency that's that, that's adjudicating Lisbeth's mm-hmm. DACA application. And we said the equities here outweigh any issues you may have with this political act. And in fact, it implicates free speech, right? Because that act was an action of free speech. Sure. Um, yeah. So it's still pending, and they've we've some some bizarre things have happened with with. With, they've, they sent us, we got a letter once that it was denied, but then they're like, no, it's reopened, it's not denied. Um, so I think it's political. I think they were waiting on the elections, and um, I think it was too hot to touch because there was a, a couple other cases of activists who, who were also being denied DACA. And, and so I think it was political at, at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, what do you guys... How are you guys feeling this week in terms of <laughs> not to I, I, we're past our hour already, but I'll try to we'll try to use this as a way to wrap up. But how are you um, how are you feeling? Obviously, uh, you know, fucking Trump just got elected here um, and we're not even five days out. And, um, you know, I'm getting obviously it seems like uh, the biggest part of our community that that's concerned are, you know, undocumented immigrants. I have family who is undocumented and they're fucking freaking out, you know? Um, and it seems like they should be, but it also sounds like obviously like, you know, this has been happening. Um, I feel like maybe like within the community, it's probably just been like, just be on your best behavior. Don't get wrapped up in anything stupid and you'll probably be okay if you're undocumented. Now I think people fear like, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Like, you don't know what's going to happen, but, you know. I don't know. What, what do you guys, um, what's, the, what's the practical thing to do now for somebody who's, um, you know, concerned about this? Is there anything you can do? Or what are the potential outcomes, I should say? I mean, I think it's too soon to know what are the potential outcomes. Yeah. I mean, one thing that we need to understand and um, realize is that Obama is responsible for a lot of the uh, really being the architect behind the programs that if Trump ends up using to deport people, I mean, it, it was Obama's idea. Is, um, he implemented all this program, so mm-hmm. we have to give credit where credit is due, even if... Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that means. Yeah. Um, I mean, we we just need to keep that in mind, right? Like yeah. Democrats have not been our friends um, for a very long time, um, regardless of what they say. <clears throat> and um, I think, like Misanka and I have said before, uh, deportations have continued to happen, not the same way that um, not with like rates, not in very public ways. And that may be the biggest change if it happens with Trump is that he's probably going to be more public about it. Um, but I also see 
potential to organize. Uh, people are angry, they're afraid. I mean, people are marching, uh, they're protesting, and that's really good. Uh, I think people should vent, people should uh, manifest their anger, but at the end of the day, they need to go back to their communities and really find ways to organize those communities. Uh, the things that I think have worked in stopping deportations, at least for um, the work that I've been doing for years is like being public and being open about your status and not letting fear paralyze you, not letting yeah. fear make you hide behind this idea of like, I'm gonna be okay, or I can pass as not being undocumented. Um, we have to confront that fear and keep organizing. We've yeah. been able to stop deportations in the past, and I think, I actually think we can continue to yeah. do that. Yeah. But we really have to be consistent and, and, and organized and um, use all of that anger and that energy that we have right now, including that fear, yeah. um, to go back to our communities and find ways to organize, find ways to teach our parents, to teach our communities, the most vulnerable members of our communities, mm -hmm. what the rights are, what the resources, uh, yeah. you know, what kind of resources they have at their disposal, and use everything that we have to, uh, to just work together. Um, I think that's, that's the best I can... I can possibly say at this point because we don't really know what's going to happen yeah. and I think um, we have to be a little responsible and not try to not sort of panic um, right. but really be prepared yeah, um, yeah. like we should have been right. all these years and I think a lot of us got comfortable a lot of people were comfortable when DACA was enacted um, because they move on with their lives and they went to work and that's really good because we should have the right to do that but we kind of forgot that there's um, that the deportation machine was still working. Well, you know? what's interesting too, you're saying all of this and you're talking about the the public nature of uh, raids versus the silent nature of, um, I don't know what you call them, but um, not only has that dulled the senses of Democrats, which I personally count myself as one of them and being like kind of ignorant to that shit. You hear the numbers again, like that's truly like, you hear the numbers, but you're like, you don't fucking see it happening. But we are definitely guilty of it. But what's interesting, too, is that Republicans are guilty of it, too, because they are angry and they want deportation. But the numbers are there to support that deportation is happening. And so they want some they want something public. They want they they want the show of force. They don't want just deportation. <laughs> they want fucking humiliation in many ways. You know, not that that's not happening yet. But the, like, and and because of like Obama, um, for, to to his detriment, you know, did these things, and he. It sounds like you know, there's a lot of political kind of backroom shit. Like, I, this is happening. I have to do this to placate this other group. Blah blah blah. But I will keep it quiet for the public. Right now, you know, Trump's deal is with the with the angry white resentment. Right. And so he has to make it public, which is it seems like it. And and certainly like it looks like with Kobach or whatever this guy's name is. And uh, Kobach being the potential, he's going to be the architect of like seemingly it looks like he's going to be the architect of what's to come here. Um, and. Yeah, it's I think that's why people are freaked. Right. Because now it's public and now, you know, um, yeah, it's it's fucking crazy. Like I don't, uh, I don't know. I I think the other the other really problematic thing about it is that um, 
you you are now going to be uh, empowering private citizens who have no fucking right to try to effectively out people or you know just to to humiliate people based on nothing but their language or the color of their skin or whatever um and so that's like a lot of like personally like and honestly like we've kind of taken a position here with like a lot of our content because we get a little political and like we were just like fuck it vote hillary vote for fucking hillary like we don't give a shit like we just don't because of because i just don't want the average fucking person on the street to start being a fucking piece of shit to the other person and there's a sense of civility which is um you know it's in cap it's trapped but it kind of keeps things moving at least and I, maybe like you do need an explosion i don't know like you know to effectively create change but um the feathers are being ruffled <laughs> and yeah yeah i mean it's certainly like a new period uh like without a doubt um you know i have like two answers one's like as or two ways of like looking at this. One is like my attorney side and then another one's like my organizer side. Like as an attorney, yeah. you know, it's important that the community knows that they have constitutional rights. Those rights haven't gone anywhere. Yeah. Um, you know, he, Trump and his administration will still need to enact and enforce any policy. Um, and as, as of now, we still have the same laws on the books. They're not the best laws at all because like Elizabeth was saying yeah. this is already happening yeah um, and so try to communicate that to the community that there's things you could know there are rights that you have that you need to be informed about right that can protect you that can offer certain protection mm-hmm. right so there's there's that and then you know also on, on, on the legal side you know he he has said that he's gonna get rid of DACA and that's something he could do on day one yeah it, right because it's, it's it doesn't have yeah. to go through Congress it's, it's an act of executive action right um, and so the advice that we're giving to other people that have DACA is if you have DACA, you've already exposed yourself to the government. Um, if you want to renew, you, you should try to renew. Um, you don't face an additional risk for doing it, and you might get yeah. a work permit for a little bit longer, yeah. right? For people that don't have DACA, um, what we're saying is don't expose yourself. There's no need for it at this point. Um, and another thing we're saying is for people that do have DACA is um, if you can get advanced parole so you could have a lawful entry and then be able to adjust status um, through marriage or th- through getting someone right. petitioned for you. Right. Because right? the main right. obstacle right. is having a lawful entry, in yeah. lo- unlawful entry. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we're telling people do it before January 20th. And there's ways of doing that by going to the field office. The center is taking too long. That takes three to four months if you apply through mail. You go to the field office and you bring medical records for a family member in in Mexico or in Latin America or wherever you're from. And you ask for advanced parole that same day. And you go and you come back before January 20th. And the reason we're saying that is like people are going to be targeted. And the people that have the privilege and the opportunity to adjust do it because we're gonna need you to help the people that can't, Yeah. right? So that's on the legal side, some of the things we're saying. Know your rights, and if you have DACA, here, here's the advice with yeah. DACA. Um, as an organizer, you know, he has said, you know, as an organizer, the big concern is that Trump is not gonna have at his hands this sophisticated deportation machine that was created by Obama. That's the biggest fear. 
He doesn't have to create it. He doesn't have to get yeah. new funds for it, right? It exists now. Yeah. And he, so he could go public. He could start doing the public raids if he wants to. And the other thing that he has said is that he's going to go after sanctuary cities because that's been a big wrench in the deportation machine right. for the reasons that we were explaining earlier. Right. And so that's, you know, that's kind of what's coming, you know, some of the, some of the attacks. And so as an organizer, the, the opportunity that Lisbeth is, is, is mentioning is that if he comes for like San Francisco, for example, or Santa Clara, um, I think we're ready for it. And I kind of hope he does because... And the reason that I'm saying that is that San Francisco and Santa Clara County have been forged in struggle in these last couple of years to protect due process and to protect sanctuary cities, right? When there was a shooting in San Francisco, they came after, you know, sanctuary city, right? right? And we stood up for it and we defended it. So we have an activated and organized community in San Francisco and same here in Santa Clara. It's not to the extent that it's going to be necessary to stop something that comes from Trump but we have the foundation for it, right? And we have the opportunity here in the Bay to set the example for the entire country because here in the Bay, we have better politics. We fight for everyone. We fight for people that have been criminalized. We don't exclude, we don't divide. We don't say we're fighting for the deserving immigrants. We don't say we're fighting for people that have DACA. We say we're fighting for everyone, yeah. right? So if they come here, we're gonna set the tone and we're gonna set the example for the entire country, right? And I think that's gonna be key. Right, because there's other places across the country where I'm not so confident in the immigrant rights movement where they're gonna be willing to compromise and are gonna be willing to go along with some of it as long as certain people get protected, right? And that sort of approach has led us to where we are now because as soon as you allow some people to get deported on policy, what happens on paper is very different. If you look, you know, statistics have been, have, have been released on this that you know, Obama says, here are the crimes that I'm gonna be targeting and deporting, right? I'm deporting felons, not families. That's his whole approach. I don't agree with that, right? But even by his own terms, he's not following his policy. He is detaining and deporting people without crimes, right? So publicly, he gives himself cover, right? Yeah. But when he goes out for people, he gets whoever he can get, right? And that's, and that's, that's what we know as organizers. And that's why I think if, he comes, if, if Trump comes here, we're going to be ready for it. And we're going to organize and we're going to have the community know its, know its rights. And every time there's a raid, every time there's a deportation, we're going to stand up for it. And what's, I think, really, really hopeful you know, if we could find any hope in this like dire situation is that Trump has targeted so many different people, Muslim Americans, uh, you know, the, the black community, you know, just women, LGBTQ, so many people that I think for the first time in this country, we're going to have a united front. It's not just going to be immigrants, yeah. right? We're going to say, look, if they come for us first, you better have our back because they're going to come for you afterwards and we're going to have your back, yeah. right? Yeah. And... And we, you know, I, th I think a lot of people, uh, you know, are scared, but the message to the community is like, we've been through worse, right? Like our families, like some people have crossed three different borders to get here. People are fleeing terrible violence, oftentimes because of the foreign policies of this country in Central America and Mexico through, through, through economic and, and, and military interventions. Um, and we've survived that and we're here and our parents and we're testament to that, right? We're still standing. Like, we haven't been knocked down and we're not going to go down without a fight. And I think this is putting us in a position where we have no choice but to fight. Yeah. Where can somebody go to learn um, about some of the practical things you were mentioning? Is there like a, one, a starting point, yeah. a website? Um, 
there's there's a lot of places. I mean, here in the Bay Area, you know, the Fire Coalition is a great group. Debug is involved. Uh, Siren is, is really involved with that group. Eighth uh, Day CLU is involved. Um, is there any one place that's kind of already, you know, updating stuff like some of the the, the practical tips you were giving? Even in like Pangea, do you guys have a yeah. site or something? Or yeah, so you know, people could you know could contact Pangea Legal Services. There's some of the bigger organizations that are putting out the legal information. So. The Immigrant Legal Resource Center, ILRC, if you look them up. I-L-R-C. Yeah. I-L-R-C. I-L-R-C. Dot O-R-G. Uh, dot O-R-G, I believe. I-L-R-C yeah. dot O-R-G. Okay. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, they have a lot of information that's that's going out. Um, <clears throat> the ACLU has a lot of information, um, you know, that's going out. And there's also a lot of community groups that are starting to have these conversations about how do we prepare the community for yeah. when January 20th comes. Yeah. Um, and in terms of at least the Bay, maybe you could talk about L.A., um, for the Bay... The Fire Coalition in, 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 in San Jose is like plug-in. Yeah. They're doing amazing, amazing work. In San Francisco, uh, there is the Free SF Coalition. Um, and then there's a lot of immigrant groups in the Bay. The California Immigrant Youth Justice Alliance is a great undocumented-led organization. The East Bay Immigrant Youth Coalition, which I'm part of, is also an undocumented-led student organization. Do you, do you know of, of any organizations in Texas by any, uh, any chance? No, because we have a lot. I'm asking because we have a lot of Texas oh, listeners. Y- yeah, we actually have a, a big following in Texas, probably bigger than we do locally. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. Just that, or, or just a national one that's a good starting point. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know that uh, Raices, Raices.org, is, uh, is an organization in um, San Antonio, and they do a lot of, uh, represent a lot of the, uh, children that are coming over from Central America. So they have a lot of resources there as well. Okay. There is a lot of um, student groups in community-based groups in Texas, um, okay. and I'm trying to remember any names right now, but definitely Raices is one of them. Okay. Um, we'll, we'll look some up and put yeah. some in the, in the, in the show comments, because yeah. I think that's important. The Pico Network, too, is all over the Southwest. Yeah. Pico Network. Yeah, I could send you stuff afterwards. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We like to put it in the, in the, in the, in the show notes or whatever, so... Um, cool, man. Well, I'm, uh, yeah, I think (laughs) it's a, it's a really confusing time, like not just practically, but I think like, you know, for everyone, it's very like confusing, like emotionally and like, just, you know, you guys are no longer jaded. So you're, you're, you're not, you're, you're not, you know, you're probably not confused. You're just like, all right, fuck it. Like, chingazos like your ghost you know <laughs> fucking throw down you know you you know it's like well shit you know this was this day was gonna come in some form or another i i you know um i think that a lot of people were like just kind of more like okay like this obama shit is awful but let's hope for you know some stability so that you know maybe it's like a it's just kind of he's like putting things into this holding pattern if you will but it, it, it's not a holding pattern for so many people Obviously, if they're gone, and and maybe and there are some people in holding, yeah. <laughs> they're literally in a holding pattern. Um, but yeah, I guess if anything good comes of it, it's that people will be mobilized and people will be more attuned to uh, literally their neighbors. Um, yeah. Do you have anything else to? Yeah. I, I, so Luzang can mention like what our parents have gone through, right? And one of the I wasn't too concerned, not that I wasn't too concerned, but um, I wasn't surprised by, um, by the election results. Um, but yeah. I was a little worried that my parents will be mm-hmm. scared. Yeah. And so I didn't get to see them on election day, but um, I called them the next day 
And I asked my dad if he, he was afraid, and he said, no, I'm not more, essentially, I'm not more afraid than I was yesterday right. when, you know, before the election results. And I think that's, um, that keeps me grounded. And yeah. I'm like, to the young people that are listening, look to your parents. Your parents are your biggest source of strength. Yeah. And look yeah. at what they've gone through, um, all the things that they've had to deal with, all the things that they've had to sacrifice to get to where they are, to get you and your siblings to where you are. And use that, um, use their courage, their example as um, fuel for you to mm-hmm. fight. Because you're fighting not just for yourself, you're fighting for your parents, you're fighting for your community, you're fighting for everyone else who has, um, who will come later, like the, the younger generations. And I think this is the time to step up. If people have DACA and are afraid to lose it, if you really value it, like this mm-hmm. is the right time to step up and, and defend that. But then fight it for, for greater protections, fight for mm-hmm. your neighbor, for your parents, for your um, you know, for, for the people that you know that may not uh, meet the requirements of DACA or are not dreamers or not young people who are more exposed than you are. Yeah. Um, we're, we're the only ones we need. We're not going to, yeah. we can't wait for a politician to come save us because mm-hmm. that's not going to happen. Democrats in Congress, as soon as they see a chance, they're going to start um, selling us out. I mean, mm-hmm. they've already started. Mm-hmm. So we can't rely on them. We have to rely on each other. Yeah. And just on a, you know, another you know, another positive note, you know, about relying about, no, 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 that is positive. You know, I think that we're relying on ourselves and I think that's what's next. Whoever's in power, right, we're going to have to hold them accountable. And, you know, Black Lives Matter has taken that position. You know, uh, a lot of people in the immigrant rights movement have began to take that position as well, not endorsing anyone. Whoever comes to power, we're going to hold you accountable, right? We, We, you know, we're the change we've been looking for type of thing. You know, and it's cliche, but it's cliche because it's true. Yeah. And it's been historically true in this country. Yeah. Um, and one really inspiring thing is that this Thursday, um, I had a, a hearing in immigration court for a detained client. And there's so many families and communities that have gone through the detention and deportation that have endured the worst that the system has to offer. And they're still standing, right? And that same day that, that we're going to court, San Francisco had tons, hundreds of high school students walked out. And I, it, just, it was a flashback to like May 1st, 2006, when I walked out. And I'm like, that was 10 years ago now, 2006, 10, yeah. years, 10 years ago. Yeah. And there was a whole leadership and there was a whole community that politicized and that entered the political stage for the first time and who hasn't stopped, right? And now we have, you know, we had eight years of Bush and we have eight years of Obama's deportation machine, right? And now we're looking at four years under Trump. Like that's the real school, right? That's the experiences that are gonna motivate people to like do something. And when I saw those kids walking out, I'm like, we're gonna be all right. That's a great place to end. Um, Thank you very, very much, Luis and Lisbeth for coming in. Oh, thank you for having us, man. This is a... pretty fucking intense <laughs> uh, no it's intense man and I but and I think it's really just um, yeah no I, I I think like this is it's awesome and I, I that you guys are involved in this and I'm like honored that you guys are here and that you're part of this and that um, our listeners can get to know you because I think yeah it just it's so faceless too 
you know I, we have listeners we have viewers I know who fucking voted for Trump but like we see it in our comments <laughs> yeah. you know what the hell are they doing watching this show yeah I don't know <laughs> they're fucking confused <laughs> just, just like we are <laughs> yeah they're you know uh, yeah it's very complicated I mean I have I have family who voted for Trump oh. it's like inner family beef or what they're like we, I probably shouldn't get into this <laughs> yeah but it's complicated man it's really complicated no, yeah and and uh and you know going through the uh you know through that emotion of like what the fuck you know and um it's yeah it's really really complicated now cuz it's so overt that's the thing but uh, but the practical matter is i think what we always try to get down to and like i think yeah people should get organized and um thanks so much for coming on no man of course man yeah. thank you for having yeah. us all right. All right, that's it, guys. Thank you very much for joining, for listening through this whole thing. Really appreciate it. Again, please remember to share this episode with your friends and family. Remember to leave a comment or a five-star review on iTunes and Stitcher for us. And if you'd like to see more of our content, please support us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash this madre. See you next week.